Elite Physique University, your source for all things physique enhancement. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Elite Physique University. I'm John Gorman, your host. We've got Jason Theobald, IFBB Pro, coach extraordinaire in the house. Jason, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing pretty well. Busy, busy morning, but I'm doing well, man. I'm happy. Good, good yeah. day. It's uh, we're we're recording on a Wednesday morning, which is not normal yep. for me because uh, I'm a night owl and I stay up till three or four o'clock in the morning and do a lot of work <laughs> late. But that's okay because I can't even crack it on the show because I'm already drinking it. So I've got my trusty monster in hand. It's nine thirty my time. I'm I may sound a little sleepy, but I'm ready to roll. What's uh, what's what's new with you, man? Me well, um, basically, you know, on my side, it's business as usual. Really, right now, I have a ton of prep clients and like junior USA's and North Americans are hitting fast and hard. So I'm staying real busy on the text, you know, helping peak. But the new, the new, you know, announcement for me is that we've we've revamped um, ScoobyPrep.com. Um, you know, I've been getting more and more inquiries, which is awesome. You know, we do these podcasts, we put out info, and a lot of people want help. And so I've been bringing on more coaches and training them up in a hybrid style, you know, with a functional medicine twist and, and of course, the physique enhancement. Um, so I'm bringing on my hybrid coaches and um, you can check out the website. It's, it's really cool. And I think you all will like it. And uh, if you, you got, you need help with hormones, hit us up contest prep lifestyle. We're doing it all. Um, and my coaches are ready. So yeah, that's, that's exciting. And I think that's about the extent of my new, my new info or, you know, what's new with me type things. Awesome. That's scoobyprep.com. I've got it linked in the show yep. notes. If you're listening, um, all you have to do is click on it. It'll take you there, man. The site looks, uh, it looks good, man. It looks good. Speaking of looking yeah, good, you. your clients are looking damn good. I I'm seeing Instagram post after post after post. I'm like, Jesus, yeah. dude, you've got an army of freaking people competing right now. Um, yeah, I, I'm a bit busy. Yeah, <laughs> you know how it goes with text messages and all that. Yeah, mine's uh, mine's the opposite. I had a, a bunch of people competing and they all got through, you know, the first beginning stages of COVID. And then I had a lot of people that just didn't want to start a prep with all this going on. It's like coach or, you know, people that started. I, have, I see a lot of coaches that are reporting the same thing. You know, they have clients that didn't want to start a prep in March or April or May because they're like, I don't know what the hell's going to happen with fall shows. So it's kind of that way. I've got a lot of my folks are off season. I've only got like two or three more people going to hit the stage this year, which is really weird for me. Um, but that's okay. I'm, it's, business is still up. It's still it's still increasing. So it's just interesting. I figured figured we kind of touch on that. And your your crew of coaches, man, you've got a great crew. Um, next time when we're not limited by COVID and we do a seminar, man, you need to bring the whole crew. That uh, oh, I know, man. It'd be good times. Hell yeah, especially the one that we're having with the six topics. Like, uh, I'd love them all to be there, but yeah, we, we yeah. were limited and the damn, those tickets went fast. <laughs> yeah, that's all right, though. Um, just one real quick um, new thing with me, and then we'll get to our very important guest. I just launched the new Fat Muscle Project um, Vanilla Cupcake Protein Powder. Super, super excited about that. My formulator that does all the the flavors and stuff is on point and it tastes like a damn vanilla cupcake. Like it's, it's really, really good. So I just launched that. Other than that, I'm not really going to spend a lot of time on me. I do want to get to our special guest today, Dr. Bill Campbell. Bill, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great. Real good. Thanks for the, the honor of being on your podcast. Oh, of course, man. Like, like uh, this is 
Jason and I get to talk about bodybuilding science and we get to be half bros and do all this fun stuff. I mean, this is, this is going to be a really fun episode. Bodybuilding science and research is, is right up our alley. Um, what's going on with you, man? Anything new and exciting that you want to share with the listeners? Yeah, we just started back to class here this week. Um, I'm at the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, Florida. And we're about to kick off some research. So fortunately, we are permitted to do research. And my research is all human research. And very excited about that because there's some states that aren't allowing research. And basically, I just had to submit my COVID-19 plan. So not that we didn't clean and disinfect things in the past, but it's a whole new level now of like down to we're, we're cleaning this handle on this machine at this time in the weight room. Yeah, We have, you know, we have our metabolic rate technician. They're seven feet distant from the body composition technician. So you can imagine the bureaucracy of making these plans in an attempt to, to do everything we can to protect the sub to protect my staff from COVID, but I'm just, I'm very blessed to be able to do research this semester. Yeah. Were you guys, did you have to kind of stay out of the facility from, I mean, was it like everyone had to be out and no research done in March and April, maybe even February for you, because down in Tampa, it kind of hit everywhere first. What was it like those first few months? Yeah. So in March, we, we shut down, we were halfway through a study and we just shut down. We, we hadn't, nobody really stepped foot in my, my lab until two weeks ago. Uh, oh, myself, wow. I wasn't there much at all, uh, probably till about a month ago. And even then it was very rare. So yeah, we're going, we're just sanitizing, going through, you know, a lot. My, I have a pretty large staff of 25 people. So to get all 25 people on the same page, in terms of the sanitation, the, the disinfectant processes, it's, it's quite a challenge. It's new, but it's like I said, just to be able to collect data right now is a huge blessing. Well, I'm glad you're back doing what you love. Um, go ahead and give our listeners a real quick um, kind of an intro on who you are and what you do in the bodybuilding community, because you're a very, very important researcher. Um, and then a little bit of your, your, your past history. And then we'll talk, I want to talk about how you and I met through the ISSM, but just give everybody a real quick snapshot of, of what you do. All right. So I, I'm a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida, and I direct the performance and physique enhancement laboratory there. And the research that I do, it seeks to help people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So I don't necessarily study bodybuilders, although I do at times, but it's nearly impossible to get 30, 40, 50 bodybuilders that are willing to do the same training program, to take the same supplements. And I would say it's, it's, it's impossible, if not nearly impossible to do that. So I do the next best thing. I research people who are willing to let me, as, as an investigator, dictate their training, their nutrition, and these people are, I think what you guys would call, what you and Jason would call your general pop clients or your, your serious fitness enthusiasts. So that's really who I research. Now, when I'm studying them, I'm learning from you, John, Jason, what are you guys doing in the field? That's where I take my cues. And then essentially I test what, what's happening in the field, what you guys are doing with bodybuilders. I dial it back a, a notch or two, and then I say, okay, does this help this population of people? 
So one could say that if you're an obese individual, my research doesn't really apply to you. Although many of the principles that we've learned through my research does apply to the obese population. And the same thing for bodybuilders. What we do is not necessarily what bodybuilders do. It's very close, but it's, it, and if I'm going to be honest, it's the, what we do here in my lab is the closest thing that bodybuilding coaches are going to be able to read in the scientific literature that could be applied to a, a competitive bodybuilder. So that's, that's kind of what we do. And we specialize in different diets, we look at, there's always a resistance training component to what we do. So we're looking at diet breaks, refeeds, rapid fat loss protocols. Uh, we do some case, we do quite a few case studies in bodybuilders. We've looked at high versus low protein intakes. We've done a glute hypertrophy study. And I guess the last thing I'll mention is my lab is very focused on females and female physique enhancement. I think we do more of that than any other lab. We do at times study males, but mostly we, we have an emphasis on females. Yeah, you've got, a, uh, you've got a long history of doing some really, really cool research that people like Jason and I can take a look at. And, and you've worked with a lot of other coaches, you know, notable coaches such as Lane Norton, such as uh, Lauren Conlon, and the list goes on and on. I mean, it's, you're kind of a powerhouse down there in Tampa, uh, pun intended because the powerhouse is down there. But yeah. Um, you're, you're doing a lot of stuff with coaches. Um, any other notable coaches that I've left out that, that you've done some pretty good research with? Oh man, I, I learned, I, I'm going to leave some out, but I'll, I'll just mention like Will Grazione, Paul Revelia, Sohi Lee, oh, yeah. um, yourself. I've been um, following Jason stuff now for a few months. Um, I, again, I know I'm leaving people out of this. So, and, and it don't take it lightly. I mean, what you guys are doing, I then learn and then I research it. It's, I'm literally probably two years behind, as is all research. I'm about two years behind what you guys are actually doing with your clients. And I just say, yep, this seems to work or no, there's, it looks like this, this might not be effective. So that, that's kind of how I see myself. I love to learn and put things to the test. Yeah, and I, and I think that makes a great researcher. I, I do want to talk real quick on, on how we met. And I don't know if I've ever told you this, Bill, but back in 2014, I attended my very first ISSN conference. It was in Tampa, and I, I attended in 2014 and 2015. I remember looking at Leslie and, and telling her, I was like, my goal one day is to speak at an ISSN conference. And um, you ended up getting a hold of me. You were the president of the ISSN at the time. This was back in 2000, early, early 2017. And you invited me to come speak at the annual conference, which was a big, big deal for me. It was a big uh, bucket list thing for me to go speak there. And I got to go talk to other researchers and the attendees about um, basically how I took the research that a lot of you guys are putting out and how I've applied it to my clients and what I've seen in the trenches as a coach. And um, I'm actually going to do that exact talk. It's the first time I've done it since 2017. I'm doing it at my seminar with uh, Jason coming up here in just a couple of weeks. And that was really fun. But my point I bring up is because we have a lot of coaches and trainers that listen to the show, guys, the connections that you make along the way at these conferences and places like that, like I can't overstate how important that is. And I met Bill. And so what happened next, another bucket list thing for me, I got to co-author some, some research. I got to be involved 
um, in a refeed study, which, you know, as most people know, I'm a refeed geek. So I got to actually write the diets for that. Um, Bill, we're, awesome. we're, yeah. And, and that's the reason I bring this up is Bill, if you're looking for another coach to do some research on Jason, I'm going to throw your name out there. I don't, I don't think there's a better coach in the industry right now that needs to have Thanks, his John. ideas, you know, paired up with someone like you, Bill. So you guys definitely need to, to get together on some stuff. I would be honored and definitely interested. Yes. Like I said, I'm, the more I can learn, I mean, um, one thing that's interesting to me is the GDAs that you guys have been talking about. Just, again, a very basic study, but that, that's very intriguing to me, that, you know, the glucose disposal agent. So that's something that's, that, that might be on our horizon. Heck yeah, definitely. I'd yeah. love that. Any of that would be awesome. Even in for taking it further, L-carnitine, all those things, just, just it, uh, yeah, just let me know it's anytime I'm, I'm game. Nice. Bill, I know that uh, one thing I'd like to see measured a little bit more is um, the effects of natural testosterone boosters and things of that nature on on natural athletes. Because there's been a lot of research put out there that shows that they're really they're they're a waste of money. Um, and Brad Schoenfeld, good friend of mine, love Brad. He's he's mentioned it before as well, and I get it. And I think one of the things missing with that kind of research is cortisol really needs to be controlled because it's, it has such an effect on testosterone level. So if someone's going to measure, you know, the effects of say my testosterone booster that I just launched or Jason's jumpstart product, if they're not measuring cortisol and they're not keeping track of that as one of the variables, I, you know, and we see that it doesn't really affect testosterone levels or we see that it does. I just think it's, I think there can be some more research done on, from that end and i'll just volunteer right now if you guys want to do that i'll supply the i'll supply the product i've got my hormone optimizer product i would love to see some research done on that because i'm seeing it come across in the labs with my clients but there's yeah. not a ton of research to back it up and a lot of people are asking for it and i'm like well, all right well what, what do we have to do to get that done so to speak yeah yeah and there's a situation where if if there is a connection with cortisol Maybe it's in the people who have a certain level of cortisol that see the benefit or, or the opposite may be true. So that's, yeah, it, it, as you know, the body is so complex that you, you kind of get into a rabbit hole of, well, what do we look at this? Do we, how do we do this? How do we control for that? But yeah, that's, um, I, I, again, this, all of these ideas are fascinating to me. Yeah, definitely. And let's, let's talk about, you know, what research do you have going on now? Or do you have anything that you're just finishing up? Anything cool you want to pass on to the listeners? And then we'll, we'll kind of get to our topics for the day. Yeah, I'll mention the, the two studies that we've just finished up. Well, one that we just finished up, and then the next that we had to stop. And now we're picking back up. Uh, and actually next on Monday, next month, this, this coming Monday morning, we're, we're starting our, our collection. Um. We've just finished a diet break study in resistance trained females. So this is for females who, who are resistance training. They're not overweight. They're not obese. So these are fit females. And we put both of them on a six-week caloric restricted diet. We reduced their calories by 25%. We have them ingest 1.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass, which again, in my world is high and I can't wait to the end when we, when I want to have that discussion, but that's high for research. And one of those groups, they dieted for six straight weeks. 
the other group, after every two weeks of dieting, we said, take a week off. You're going to take a break and you're going to go back to your maintenance calories, but you're, we're going to keep your protein high, but you're going to go back to maintenance. So they took a break in week three. And then again, after the next two weeks of dieting, after week five, or after the fourth week of dieting. So their entire intervention was, was eight weeks instead of six because of their two weeks of diet breaks. And we are just about ready to finish the analysis of that data. And we hope to submit that for publication in the next month or two. So I, I can't share the results yet because journals have this rule. If you share data before it's published, they, they can terminate the, the publication. And um, I don't know why, that seems very um, communistic to me. <laughs> it does. It's a good word for it. <laughs> yeah, very, very controlling. Um, so, and I look at that um, just for, for, as diet, even the refeed study, which I know we're going to talk about. I look at, if you're not doing, if there's no harm in taking a break, and again, maybe for a competitor, there may be harm because they have to step on stage on a certain date. But for the, the person who's just trying to walk around lean most of their life, if there's no harm, if they're going on vacation and there's data to suggest, if you take a week off and, and not have this, this, you know, just, just falling off the wagon and you're eating everything in sight, but if you have a controlled eating period where you're not dieting, I think that's very beneficial psychologically and just to enjoy your life. So yeah. whether or not the data would suggest, oh, there's a benefit here, and some studies do suggest a benefit. The Matador study in obese males reported that taking diet breaks actually increased the efficiency of fat loss. So they lost more fat coming off of their diet breaks. Now, again, that was obese males. So that, that whole concept to me, just as a physique lifestyle, it is very exciting to me in, in an area of research. The What's other a, study that we argue, you have a comment on that before I talk about the other ones? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, Jason, let's let's talk about a little bit of what we see on our end. We we did a whole episode on on diet breaks and, and stuff like that, but yeah. let's let's talk a little bit about what we see because I know for my end personally, we, we both have increased calories, dropped cardio, and done certain things to keep fat loss going or to get someone to drop if they're stalled out. Um, you're re you're really big on um, cortisol breaks right now. Um, yeah. How do you think that kind of ties into these diet breaks and, and what you just heard Bill talk about? Well, think like 100% it ties in because, you know, you, like, like, he, like his example, Bill's example was, you know, hey, go on vacation, um, ease up a little bit, take, take a week off, you know, don't eat like an asshole, but, you know, just kind of get into a little bit of surplus, which is going to happen naturally on vacation if you're not being super anal. And, you know, he said it's very beneficial. And I 100% agree. And, and my theory behind it, as you know, is, is usually that cortisol gets to drop. Um, a lot of that builds up on these people, especially females. Um, they just seem to have more of a cortisol response to the training than men do when I look at labs. And so, you know, that's why when, you know, I'm having struggles with someone in prep, I do what I call cortisol resets. You know, I'll hit them with maybe three to four days where they don't train. They don't, they don't do cardio. I, I put carbs, you know, maybe, uh, 230, 250, you know, these are mainly females a lot of times. And, um, I hit them with our cordies and, you know, I'll hit them every three to four hours. 
And then I get them back to the deficit afterwards. And usually 95% of the time, their body starts working again. Now, I might have to do this again in 14 days because the general diet is so low. So that's, a, that's immediately putting them <clears throat> sorry, back into a stressful state. But these are things that I've been playing around with rather than just drop, car drop carbs, here's more cardio. Drop carbs, here's more cardio. I get to a point where I realize that that is suboptimal. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things too, just, you know, it's just as soon as a couple of years ago, I would think, I would think about things like refeeds and diet breaks, stuff like that. And I would think about it from the food being the main driver, the main standpoint. But now the more I've learned about cortisol in the body, the more I see how food and a break and all that stuff helps lower cortisol. And that's really how I almost look at everything when it comes to a diet break or refeed is, you know, how's it affecting cortisol along with everything else? I used to just think, well, you know, it would boost leptin, it would boost their metabolism, mental, you know, they get a mental break, they'd stick to their plan a little bit more. But really, you know, I think 90% of it comes down to how does it affect cortisol and stress and things like that. So I figure we just give Bill a little bit of feedback on what we're seeing in the trenches um, as coaches and how that kind of ties into the research. Because without that research, I'm not, I'm not really understanding how to do a lot of this stuff. And I think that I think that ties into a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about here today. Uh, Bill, you had some other new research coming out that you want to talk about. Yeah. And one quick question. When you guys are getting your clients to, to get their cortisol levels tested, are they testing that in the morning upon awakening? Is it like a saliva test? Good Is question. it a blood test? How are, you, yeah. how are you guys getting that data from your clients? So I'll answer that. Um, so Sometimes, Bill, it comes down to funds. But if you can, if you can get a four-point saliva, that's what I prefer because then I can map them out, right? Like I can see sometimes where people, you know, they wake up and their cortisol should be 10, 11, 12, 13, and it's seven. So I'm like, okay, adrenals are a little down. So maybe some vitamin C, I, I, you know, some different things, or I hit them with our adrenal health. Um, maybe their cortisol then spikes at 2 p.m. Um, we can do some things to help that. If if money is an issue and a lot of these clients, I need to see other blood labs. I will just take a serum um, cortisol. So it's fasted morning cortisol. And then based on other symptoms, I can kind of piece together their rhythm. But if you can get a saliva four point test, I like the ZRT one. They can do it at home. It's a little more accurate. So um, as you were, if, as you would be setting up studies, I would say do a four point saliva rather than just relying on serum. But I sometimes go serum because of just funds. Okay. Hey, Jason, real quick. Cause I know people are going to, they're going to message me. Uh, where's a good place to get that saliva test done. I, I think Vince's site has that. Vince's it? site, nutrition dynamic. And then on the la left of his like menu drop down, I believe it literally says labs or tests or, you know, diagnostics, click on that. And then look for ZRT. I think it's only 162 bucks. But like I said, when I already have someone running 200 bucks for labs, they got to hire me. There's supplements involved, food. Sometimes, you know, when they push back, I just say, look, I can take your serum. I'll take your fasted cortisol and then piece it together based on, you know, their intake forms of where their energy dips and different things like that. Okay. Listeners, I have that in the show notes as well linked up. So I'm just going to go directly to the test. Um, if I can find it on there, which I should. So there you go. Okay, Bill, uh, back to you. What else do you have new coming out? So the other study that we started, <clears throat> we actually were able to finish 
20 subjects and now we're trying to finish 20 more this semester, but we're doing a rapid fat loss study. And that seems kind of contradictory to my philosophy. I, I, I do not advocate crash diets, rapid fat loss, but we're taking this from a, a, a broader viewpoint. And the, the question that my lab's focusing on is how much fat or how aggressive can we be with the human body in terms of restricting calories and just take off as much fat as humanly possible while protecting muscle mass and metabolic rate? Where is that threshold for most people? So when I say we're doing a rapid fat loss study, we are, it's two weeks, and I'll give you the caloric deficit here in a second, but there is no intention that this diet is going to be followed for four weeks, a month, eight weeks, four months. So by design, it is rapid, it is severe, but we're trying to see, okay, how, how aggressive can we be without doing any metabolic damage? That's the, the, the overall question. So it's another way to look at this is if you're, let's say a, like a, a lifestyle client and you, you, you're highly motivated to diet, maybe it's beneficial to take advantage of that motivation and just really hammer a caloric deficit for a very but, short yeah. time, but then come out of it because we don't want to do the damage. We don't want to do metabolic, yeah. metabolic rate. So you had a comment? Well, I just like it. I mean, I think it's a great idea. I mean, if someone's set up properly for something like that, like I'm really interested in the outcomes that you see. Um, I, did you say you can't discuss like what metrics you're looking at because it would ruin the study or you? No, can't no, I can, I can, t I just can't give in, I can't give data like, Oh, we we're seeing five pounds of weight loss. In oh, this okay. okay. Um, yeah. Like what metrics are you looking at to preserve, like to ensure that they're not having any issues or are you basically just saying, you know what? And we've seen that in two weeks, most of the time the body can't downregulate. Let's just go with two weeks. I'm just curious the metrics that are being looked at. Yeah, so since this is the first study that I'm aware of in a resistance trained population, we're being very general. So we're, we're casting a broad net initially. So it's, met, it's metabolic rate, so resting metabolic rate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and body composition. So we're looking at how, how okay. fat loss and the ability to, I don't think anybody's gonna gain muscle in this, but yeah. how much muscle mass do they lose? And we use ultrasound for our, for our detection of muscle mass and fat loss. Got it. Got it. Okay, great. And the caloric deficit we're using is a two-week, 37.5% caloric deficit. So basically what we're saying is, can we be that aggressive in two weeks with a 37.5% reduction from maintenance calories and preserve muscle mass and metabolic rate? One other thing is we are requiring these subjects to maintain their resistance training program. So whatever they've been doing, they're going to continue to do but they have to do it in my lab. So we're, we actually supervise them doing their normal workouts in my lab. Um, John's seen my lab. I've got, you know, I've got dumbbells to a hundred. I've got, I've got yeah. a lot of equipment. So we're not really yeah. lacking in any equipment. And the other thing is we're requiring that they eat a gram of protein per pound of body weight. So it's, okay. it's, we're, we're doing everything we can. We have the resistance yeah. training stimulus and a high protein. So everything we can to keep muscle and metabolic rate from, from getting suppressed. Yeah. These two yeah. Weeks. I'll be really interested. I, I'm going to say that, 
you know, metabolic rate really probably isn't super impacted. I would assume that because of your refeed studies, you guys have them refeeding twice a week or at least once. Or no, is it just, 14 no. straight days. Now, again, okay. we'll do, I'm sure we'll do a follow-up and we'll start okay. doing this more intricate stuff. Sorry and if I missed blood part. Got yes. it. Okay. So it's just a clobber uh, caloric deficit, 14 straight days. Let's see what kind of fat loss we can get. And is that a better trade-off than what we lose in a metabolic rate? That's cool. I got it. Yes. And then again, the follow-up studies, once we know what happens, then yeah. we can start getting a little, we can start asking more finite questions like maybe T3. What happens to T3 over these two weeks? What happens to leptin over? So uh, yeah. now again, of course, that's where the, the, the funding is, is an issue. And I need, I need to say this too. My lab is, is a complete 25 student volunteers, mostly master's students, but we do these studies on virtually no no funding, which is unheard of in this space. If you ever wonder why nobody's doing this research, it's because nobody will do it for free. Yeah. Now, I've again, 25 master's students, a few undergraduate students. Um, I've had dimatized nutrition in the past. They funded some of this work. Um, and again, just I just dropped nearly $600 just on cleaning supplies to adhere to our COVID policy. So this is, um, it's, it's unique in the sense that we do these studies for, for, for the budget that we do. Now, as soon as we want to start looking at blood work, now you're, now you're starting to talk, you know, thousands of dollars to get yeah. that done. You yeah, know, Bill, I mean, it'd be, really, it'd be really cool to see like what happens to cortisol in that two week period too. But I get, I get it. Like it's funding issues. Yes. Yeah. Bill, I was going to say, um, so I've actually done exactly the, the, uh, short, harsh two week cut. Um, yeah. I did it, let's see, it would be about four months ago. I did it for two weeks. I was right at a 40% deficit. Um, so my calories are right at, you know, around 1500 from just, just a little over, you know, 2,600 maintenance. And I did it hard for two weeks. And my whole thought process was, you know, listen, my, my fat ass has enough body fat on me that I'm not going to lose muscle because I have enough, plenty of fat to draw from for fuel. Um, I big firm believer since I've looked at muscle mass and stuff like that. Most of it's lost on physique athletes. Once they get really lean toward down towards the end in natural athletes, there's been plenty of, plenty of, um, research. And so I, Pete fishing did it as a matter of fact, that showed just most of the, the lean mass lost was towards the end. So I thought, all right, I've got a decent amount of body fat. I'm going to do this for two weeks. And then I wanted to have a bunch of my clients jump in and do it with me after I did it once. Um, but then COVID hit and all this other stuff hit, but I've actually done that. And I lost a dramatic amount of body fat, uh, wasn't able to go get it measured anywhere due to COVID, but I was pretty impressed with it. The one thing I did notice is my body temperature dropped from upper 97s down to lower 96s whenever I would measure it in the morning. Cause it's really the only metric I could use to measure that. Um, yeah. I didn't really feel bad at all because it was only two weeks and um, I was, I really, really sharpened up. So 
since in two weeks I have to stand next to Jason, he's a fucking IFBB pro and looks like a million bucks. <laughs> my fat ass is doing it right now. I'm on day two. So I, I love that, that you brought that up. It's not something I think people should do all the time, but I'm going to pair that up with, you know, injectable carnitine and um, some cardio and things of that nature. And I really think for someone like me, I think it's if they need to sharpen up quick in a hurry, I think it's a, it's a great tool. So when can we kind of expect um, the information for that study to come out? So if, if, if we're able to finish this and every day I tell not every day, but it's on my mind every day, if COVID has an outbreak on our campus, then we're going to be shut down again. But if we can make it through mid-October, we will be done with this study. So end of October is when we'll be done. We'll submit for publication by December. And I would hope that this is published in spring of 2021. So maybe in time, possibly, depending on, on how fast we, we move, I could, I could discuss this at the Physique Summit. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully we're able to have that down there. That's just... I talked to Cliff the other day. He was our last guest and we're like, man, we just, we just don't know if we can have the summit in Tampa like we want. It really just depends on, yep. on yep. limitations, but we're, we're working on some, some backups and stuff like that. Um, yep. Let's talk about a very important topic and that's going to lead into um, the rest of the show. Let's talk about bro science being half bro. And let's talk about researched and published data um, because I'm, I'm a self-professed half bro, Jason, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you would admit to the same. We both kind of yeah. learned in the trenches, you know, Flex Magazine and things of that nature. Bill, how important is is bro science? And if you would kind of define bro science, how important is bro science for people like you that are that are doing all the science in the lab? So I, 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 I need your guys's definition of this too. But when I when I hear the word, let me let me give the two the two polar extremes of a coach, as I see it. We have one coach who is one hundred percent evidence based. They're they're per, they are coaching their clients one hundred percent based on the research publications. So that could be my studies. They see what my study comes out, and they're going to put their client on the program that we used in my study, the exact macros. So there's a hundred percent evidence based. The other end of the spectrum is a hundred percent bro coach who doesn't ever look at a scientific study. It is 100% their experience with clients. And I, I have the opinion, both of those extremes are not good. The, somewhere in that middle, is the is is going to be the best approach and i'll give an example on why i think there's this dichotomy of of an argument of evidence-based versus 100 experience so i think that the science should basically serve as a guide the the, the evidence in the in the academic journals again this is where i come from that should serve as a guidepost to, hey, we should do, we should follow these principles with our clients. And then your experience is where everything is fine-tuned to that extent. So how, how, what do you think of my definitions or at least my viewpoint of this dichotomy? Well, I, per, I personally think that's, that's spot on. And I think that 
you know, a lot of our listeners, they fall right into that middle category. You know, they, they lean a little bit to both sides or they've learned one way and they've slowly started to gradually, you know, add some science to the things that they look at. Um, so I think that's great. You know, bro science to me is, is someone who's is stating a claim based on experience only, but it's not backed by research. And I don't think bro science is a bad thing. I think anyone that can think and make an educated guess and try and think about how the body works and they're trying to be smart about it. I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you don't state it as fact, as 100% fact. I'm real big on on having theories, so to speak, you know, and, and I a lot of the stuff that I do um, is stuff that I, I have to guess on and I make an educated guess. I'm like, fuck, I'm going to see if that works because there's not a lot of research on it. And I think bro science leads to a lot of the research that's that's done over the years so i think it definitely has its place i mean i don't know jason what's what's your take on that you know um <laughs> you know there's certain things that like i know research has came out on but i just it's like i feel like i see better than i read you know and so like one thing is fasted cardio like i just i don't really care about the study on it i know that i can go lighter I know that I don't have to go, you know, 140 beats per minute later in the day when I'm fed. I feel like for me and my clients, that's better. I think you've moved completely away from it because of the research. So I think there's things where, you know, um, I'm going to always be mixed. Um, I do love the research, you know, like the, the double refeeds. And, you know, we've talked about putting those in in the week. And I, and I definitely do all that. Um, but there's certain ones where I'm just like, in practice, I feel like um, some of the things that maybe the bros or that bodybuilders have just done for years still hold true. Um, and so I'm definitely a mix. And I, but I think that the coaches who close a blind eye to, to all of the science are doing themselves a disservice and their clients a disservice. So I, I think you should keep an open mind 100%. And, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot. So that's where I'm kind of at on it. Yeah. And I think Bill, you know, two, two good examples I can think of. And one we're actually going to talk about here just a little bit, but two examples I can think of that helped me as a coach move away from what I learned in flex magazine and just learned from other bodybuilders over the years. Um, not that all that stuff was bad. It actually led to some great research was, um, the first one was high protein consumption. I mean, bodybuilders for years have been consuming, 300 grams, you know, especially on the IFBB side, the bigger guys, but there's a lot of bodybuilders that have been consuming high protein. Um, and then, you know, the next thing we know is, is people like you and, and Jose Antonio come out with some great research on higher protein intakes. So, you know, the bro science kind of led to that if, if, if I'm not mistaken. And then the other thing is, is, is training frequency. I used to hundred percent believe in training body parts once a week, don't overreach, don't overtrain. And once the research started to come out with training body parts twice a week to maximize your growth, I mean, it's very, it's very well stated that the research supports that I moved my, myself and my clients and the results just went through the roof. You know, I did that probably about a decade ago. So that was something to where science changed my mind on things, but there, there are other things too, kind of like Jason said that I'm just like, you know what, I, I see what's working and I'm going to have to go with it. Um, that's just kind of my take on it, if that helps, Bill. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this works both ways. Like you said, you, I, you let the science, at least the principles, and let's use the training frequency, guide you. And now, of course, you have your own system 
that's probably individualized for your clients. But don't forget, I'm a scientist. And who, who am I taking my lead from on a lot of my study ideas? The coaches. So I, I might be the only scientist that does that, <laughs> who doesn't first look at the literature to guide me, because a lot of the stuff in the scientific literature is so impractical. It's, it, it would, I would literally feel like I'm wasting my life if I were to let that guide, guide my research designs. Um, yeah. Go, go ahead. I was just going to no, point no. out that, that, you know, when it, one more thing on this, you know, bro science, half bro and, you know, scientist side of things. I know just from personal experience, you see a lot of, you know, people that are just a hundred percent, hundred percent evidence based and people that are just hundred percent bro. Um, they really don't like one side or the other. And I think a lot of it comes down to maybe, you know, they're, they're just the way people are. Some people have an elitist attitude, um, you know, and it, and it goes both ways. I think if people can get past that shit and think about the point, listen, I'm trying to learn and become better. It's mostly, it's the people that don't really want to accept that there's another way to do things. Those are the people that kind of pigeonhole themselves and they don't really make progress. So if you're a coach and a trainer listening out there, my advice to you is, get off that shit quit worrying about that and open up your mind to kind of blending a little bit of this stuff i just i'm, I'm always thinking about the coaches and trainers listening to the show you know is, is the person that puts together these notes i'm thinking what can we possibly get a, across to them and that's just a point that i wanted to make uh, bill anything else you want to talk about with experienced coaches versus evidence-based coaching yeah i wanted to give a an example of like an, an actual hard example of where some of some of this, I don't know if we call it confusion or just that people are digging in. So I'm working on this. And again, this is part of my plan talk for the physique summit. So one of them, and, and I've heard you guys talk about this, by the way, I've listened to every single episode. I'm not through the last one yet with, with Cliff, but this, your podcast is so good. Like Thank it's you. literally, Thank and then you. I found myself like, I'm not going to text them. That's just being rude. But you guys were about a week behind there. You didn't post one for the one week. <laughs> Jason was at the, the Tampa Pro. I'm like, well, I'm sure they're, they're busy. But <laughs> that thought crossed my mind. That guy couldn't log on on, on show day and, 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 and record a podcast? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the nerve. And here I am waiting. It's, it's right. my, I have my garage gym and it's my, it's my garage gym uh, podcast time. So, um, so, but I've heard you guys talk several times about calories in and calories out. And I'm going to explain what I think the problem is with a disagreement there. So the evidence-based coach relies on the scientific articles to form their opinions. And it's very clear there are thousands of weight loss studies where if you reduce your calories, people lose weight. I don't think there's, I'm not aware of any study where they put people in a caloric deficit and they didn't lose fat. So the data is clear. The other thing with that is um, you have the, 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 the bro coach who would say, or not even the bro coach, but just the coach who would say, well, I know this client. I've been working with them for three or four years and they are not losing fat. They are at a standstill. So the evidence coach says, well, I know the research. Every single study says that if you're in a caloric deficit, you're going to lose weight. 
The other thing, those studies that they're relying on, they're never bodybuilders. Never, ever, ever. They're, they, are gen, they are usually overweight or obese. So they're forming their opinions on a non-bodybuilding or a non-fitness enthusiast population. And they say that's the data. The coach who's in the trenches is working with a different population that's really never been studied in, lar in, in, in let's just say, much, if ever, in the scientific literature in terms of coming to stand still on weight loss. And they're saying something's going on. I've been following their macros. They're, they, they, they're an experienced competitor. And they're basing their opinion on it's not just calories in, calories out. So what do you do with that? I think the evidence-based coach is misapplying the research. It's a different, essentially, let me say this, it's a different population. You can't assume that what you're seeing in 48 studies in calories in, calories out applies to a five-time-per-week resistance training, high-protein-taking, alpha competitive bodybuilder. You, I think you have to be open. Maybe there's something else be going on that's causing a block of fat loss, even when in a caloric deficit. I think that captures this problem, and the problem is a lack of realization of the population. So I'd love for both of you just to chime in on that. You know, we did a, we did an episode on calories in versus calories out with hormones. Um, and it was definitely one of our more popular, most downloaded shows. Um, and I think that topic, we still need people to dig in, especially from the research community. Um, it's one that I'm passionate about. You know, I really thought about at the physique summit, not doing a talk and actually inviting a very well-known person that likes to rely heavily on the fact that it's all calories in calories out and that hormones don't really play as big of a role as what we think. And I would represent the hormone side and have just a nice friendly debate. You know, this person's my friend. I haven't reached out to him yet. So I'm not going to say who his name is. Uh, we all know him, all of us sitting in here on the show right now. And I've thought about it. I thought, you know what, let's just have a friendly debate because there's things that Jason and I discussed on that episode that just aren't in the research right now. So it, that's that's a, another good take, though, that you gave, Bill, is misrepresenting um, the population. And that's, man, that that's important. Jason, what do you think? Well, you know, it's not that I don't think calories in, calories out is, is important. Um, I, I do. I mean, it's just um, when you have hormonal issues, I mean – you know, a lot of times it affects the thyroid. So now you're metabolically less efficient. And so, you know, at, and when given that, um, calories in, calories out gets skewed a bit in terms of you're not going to be able to burn fat like you did at 1600 calories when you were um, fully healthy. And now you're wondering why at 1300, you know, you're either putting on weight or your body is not responding. So in that instance, um, once those hormone dysregulations kick in and we're not, you know, metabolically efficient down to the cellular level, um, that's where, you know, I think the two, um, you know, the, the calorie in calorie outside and then the hormone side, like they both matter. It's just the cells aren't operating efficiently anymore due to the low uh, hormonal um, environment. 
And so I think if both sides would keep that in mind, there's a middle ground to rest in. It's just, if all you're going to say is calorie in calorie out, um, it's just not the full picture in my opinion. And I've seen it time and time again with labs and just people coming to me. So Bill, Bill, let me ask you a question kind of follow up on what Jason just said, how ahead of the, of the research community is what he just said. Um, you know, obviously calories, cal- calories in and out has been researched and been looked at, but how far ahead are we talking about how hormones impact a deficit and what those calories need to be? It, you know, is that, we always say research is, is five to 10 years behind, I think is the saying. Um, is this something that, that, you know, we're still waiting on for, for quite a few years? What do you think? I, I think so. Uh, and I can't speak to the obese literature because I don't follow that. I, my, I have a small bandwidth, so my focus is on lean people losing fat and lean people losing weight. So again, people that are trying to optimize their physiques. So I don't want to say, because I don't know how much of this is prevalent in the obese literature, um, but to, to be honest with you, an obese individual, they're, gonna, they're probably not in danger of a lot of this stuff because they have so much fat to lose. I, I, I believe this is more of an elite physique issue. And the literature doesn't, it, it just doesn't talk to that. And I think in order for the research to get there, you're going to have to have some base studies in lean people trying to lose fat, get that published, and then you can start asking more specific questions. So I would, I would say, and I guess I'm highly biased, the research that I'm doing now is kind of paving the way, either for myself or other people, especially with this rapid fat loss study, we're opening up the ability to then take it to the next level, which would be some hormonal related research questions. Yeah, I like it. Let's, uh, I know you're pressed for time. We have a couple more things that, that I want to cover here um, that are near and dear to you that you really want to talk to the listeners about. Let's talk about protein for physique enthusiasts. You did, um, you did some work in your lab on this, man, this, this is going to be good. And I know you have some things you want to talk to Jason and I about, so go ahead and kick that off with uh, protein intake for physique athletes. Yeah, so we did it. We published a study in 2018 in aspiring female physique athletes. Some of these females had competed. Most of them had a desire to compete as a bikini or figure competitor within the next year. So I don't want you to, I don't want your audience to think, oh, this was done in bikini and figure athletes. That's not true. But again, the closest thing you're going to get to getting about 20 of these females to let you dictate everything about their life. (laughs) for two months we had one group increase their protein we said you you have to increase your protein to at least a gram per pound and then the other group we said you have to decrease your protein you can't eat more than about half of a gram per pound and we followed them for eight weeks and after the eight weeks and you're going to say well well no kidding you had to do a study to show this but that study hadn't been done before. And what we found was that the high protein group significantly increased muscle mass as compared to the low group. Now the low group actually did maintain their muscle mass. And part of that could have been because all the workouts were supervised, et cetera, et cetera. But the the intriguing thing was 
the high protein group increased their calories by three, about 300 calories per day for eight straight weeks and all in the form of protein. And they actually lost a little bit of fat. It wasn't a significant amount of fat, but they lost fat, um, both in terms of body fat percentage and fat mass. And I was like, well, that's not what you would expect. You, you don't increase your calories and lose fat. And that kind of made me sensitive to looking at other research. And I've since found a handful of studies where the researchers increased calories in the form of protein only. And there were either no increases in fat and in some cases, losses of fat mass. Yeah. And it's, I, I'm... Every time I mention it, I'm pushed aside, but you don't see it once, twice, three times, four times in the literature. And at least I can't. I can't just say, huh, well, that's an anomaly. It's an anomaly the first time you see it. Second time you see it, it's a coincidence. And then I'm seeing it three and four times. So I, there's something about increasing protein intake or incre overfeeding when it's all coming from protein and the po I'm just going to use the word potential and the potential for fat loss. It's super interesting. Um, I know for my end, I, Jason, I know you've got a ton to probably chime in on this because yeah, I do. I have a few yeah. things anyways. Yeah. I'll, I'll hit mine real quick and then I'll turn okay. it over to you because that way I we might I have the same. <laughs> we'll see if I have anything left after you go for it. Well, what I, I've got a couple theories, you know, this is bill. I want to see if you can, if, if you'll, you know, subscribe to a theory. First, first thing is I've actually tried this with my clients is about five years ago. I just wanted to see what a high protein refeed would do. And I thought, you know, we do carbs, you know, carbs boost leptin and boost the metabolism. So we think, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in our next point, but I thought, fuck, instead of increasing carbs or fats, what if I just increase protein? And I thought my, my thinking behind this was like, the thermic effect of protein, the amount of calories it takes to break it down is significantly higher um, than carbs and especially higher than fats because there's just not a lot of thermic effect for fats. And I thought about it. So what I do is I, I would have my, my clients do an extra 200 to 250 grams of protein one night just to see and report to me what they, what they felt and what they saw. And they, they sweat all night long, you know, that was the thermic effect of it, of adding that much protein. Um, and I had them do a lot of whey protein. I didn't have them do a lot of meats and stuff like that. I just want to increase the amount of protein that was, so it wouldn't mess with their gut. And, you know, I saw a lot of clients that would go on to hit new lows a couple days later. And it was, you know, I haven't really done a lot of that since then. Um, it was something I did for a little while and then I just kind of dismissed it and didn't really do it much, but that was always my thought was, you know, higher protein diets help with fat loss if you increase the calories because of thermic effect. So, you know, we talk about calories in versus calories out. If, if a guy is eating 2000 calories to diet and he's got a higher protein intake, moderate carb, moderate fat, right? Uh, versus 2000 calories from low protein, higher carb, moderate fat, whatever you want to pick it which one's going to be better for fat loss to me. And this is where the macro setup is more important than the total calories. You know, if the calories are the same. It's when protein's higher. Um, would, would you agree that maybe, or maybe that theory is correct, that it's the thermic effect of protein that's causing some minor fat loss to happen? Well, it's the, it's the only thing that makes sense 
that that at least to me now the other the other the other thing is if you're eating 100 calories of protein yes you're having a higher thermic effect but you're not burning 130 calories to digest and absorb the 100 calories of protein it's 25 so there still is a net gain of calories which in theory should still increase fat stores because the thermic effect again theoretically is not greater than the total caloric load so the other thing is this neat this you know fidgeting more moving more that's even above and beyond the thermic effect those are so the thermic effect and your non exercise activity thermogenesis are the only two things to me that even makes sense as to why fat would be lost. Um, I don't, I'm not aware of any protein overfeeding studies where fat was gained. Where, again, and the key here is all of the calories that were overfed were in the form of protein. So yeah, the Antonio study, um, I mean, his was really high. I can't remember the exact. Oh, it was like nearly 800 calories more. Ca- yeah, no gain in fat. That was yeah. insane. Um, that was his 4.4 grams per kg, or I guess, yeah, a little like, yeah, around two grams per pound study. Um, Yeah. And there was a little bit, uh, they didn't monitor aerobic activity in that study and they didn't supervise the workout. So there were some, there are some things that you just don't know. What if the, the, the high protein group resistance trained more? So I would have liked for better controls, but from what they reported, yeah, 800 calories. Um, and I saw that. And I'll just give you my mind, what my mind was doing. I read that and I'm like, yeah, that's, I don't know about that. And then my, then we did my study and we, we weren't trying to overfeed. But that's just how it worked out. We did want a high protein. And then we saw the same thing, like only 300 extra calories in protein. They didn't gain fat. In fact, they lost more fat. Um, and then that's when I started looking for other studies and, and, and where I'm at now. Interesting. What were some of your, what what are some of your observations on this? Well, um, I think I'm going to say it a different way, but I think it's the same thing John's saying. I mean, I, I was always taught and from the literature I've read that protein digests the least efficiently compared to carbs. So, I mean, if you ate a hundred carbs, and 100 grams of protein, you're going you're gonna to get more calories from the carbs. So I know even when I'm prepping people, as I drop carbs and calories are starting to get low, I give them back about 15% of what I'm pulling from carbs. So if I pull 40 carbs, uh, I will give them, that's about eight grams of protein. And I start adding that. And not only do they get more satiety from it, but it seems to help keep the metabolism up and does not affect fat loss. And I was always taught that, you know, you just aren't as efficient as digesting the calories from protein as you are as carbs and fat. So that little swap that I do actually works really well. And that was my belief behind it. Yeah. I, the, the literature, yes, that's the literature supports that it's those, the, 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 protein structure has, it has these amino groups or these nitrogen atoms and it's just it's hard it takes more energy to break them so that's yeah. why there's more heat release or more thermogenesis trying to digest and absorb protein as compared to the non-nitrogenous carbs and fat compounds that we're ingesting yeah now do you guys 
if, if I say a gram per pound, in my world, that's high. And as I work with, you know, lifestyle people, I, it's, it's, a, it's a chore to get people up to that. In your world, you guys are dealing with pretty high-level bodybuilders. Is that the low end? And it's not a chore for your people to ever get a gram per pound of protein? Oh, no. I mean, my people eat more than a gram a pound. The only people I have that only eat a gram per pound are my people who have health issues, um, digestion problems, um, where I maybe have to get more uh, fats in them to uh, improve hormonal health. And I can't put a ton of calories in them right away because thyroid's down, other problems. But generally speaking, if I have a healthy person, I'm probably going more at about 1.25 to 1.3 for a woman and 1.5 all the way up to two for men, um, assuming digestion's great, uh, you know, regular bowel movements, all that. So I don't consider myself a high protein guy, but one gram per pound for me is on the lower end and it's usually saved for health cases. And I don't ever see people really having a ton of problems except when they have digestion issues. So that's why I go to the one gram per pound in those cases for me, John, I don't know where you're at on that. Yeah, we're, you know, we're pretty similar. Um, I like to set mine up based on lean mass if I can, um, just because I have quite a few clients that are gen pop that come to me very, very heavy and I just can't, I just can't use their body weight as a goal. I mean, I can kind of look at them and, and know at this point I've yeah, worked 100%. with so many people. I don't get those type of clients. Yep. Yeah. So, I, you know, if I get the, the 330 pound guy, sure. I, I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll drop them down. So I, I really base a lot of mine, Bill, on, on lean mass. So maybe anywhere between um, 1.25 to 1.5 times their lean mass. And the only time I really go lower is kind of like what Jason said, if, if they've got issues with gut health or if they're ketogenic, I go to one gram of protein per pound of lean mass. And I've never had any issues with someone getting kicked in and out of ketosis with gluconeogenesis or any of that going on. So um, the, the 1.1 or 1.0 per, per pound of body weight is pretty standard in bodybuilding. I mean, I think a lot of people kind of default to that. It's certainly not high, but you're saying that's high in the research community. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, I would say very high um, in, in, for, again, in, let's just say in the nutrition research area, it's, it's very high. And again, for, for your world, and I would say, yeah, just, just the fitness enthusiast world. Yeah, it's not, it's normal, very normal. But um, there's, again, if you look at, well, there's just very, very little research in lean people trying to optimize their physiques. The, nobody funds that kind of research because there's no health issue. The, and the reason why I don't necessarily gravitate towards the recommending per based on lean body mass is a lot of people just don't know their body mass. But obviously, if, if everything I did revolved in the world of bodybuilding, those people know their, their fat mass, their, their right. lean body mass. It's much easier. Um, but for the, uh, the people that I mainly researched, it's, it's, it's just so much easier to default to your body. So another th thing I wanted to ask you guys for our rapid fat loss study, where we, where we reduced their caloric intake by nearly 40% over two weeks. And while we required them to have a gram per pound of protein, uh, more than one or a 
few of my subjects, in order to, to meet that, they were getting nearly 100% of their calories were having to come from protein. Is this something that you guys ever experience as you're working with contest prep clients? And you, John, did you want me to go next? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so no, I, I haven't. Um, so if I understand correctly, you're saying that you're, so here's your rules. You're taking 40% off of their caloric intake that they're reporting to you. And then you're doing one gram per pound of body weight in um, protein. And then that basically takes up all their macros. See, for me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that person diet because I would say, oh God, their calories are too low coming to me. I don't think they're going to be able to drop. So I would be like, you can't get ready for a show or a cut. I'm going to up your calories so that I have more room. Um, I'll be interested to see if those people can even drop weight. So that sounds almost like they're on the carnivore diet at, at that point, And I'm not a fan of that. So that's where my thinking goes as a contest prep coach. Like, yeah, your calories are just way too low right now you're not going to be successful in a cut. So I'll actually be very curious how well those people do. Yes. And there's, again, the difference between who you're working with and my people who are fit, but they're not, they're not elite, if that makes sense. Like they're not competitive. Their, their calories probably just aren't as high as the, 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 these competitive bodybuilders. So that, that makes sense as to why I, we ran into that. And again, yeah. it was rare, but we still came across. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Bill, I know you've got a, a meeting coming up, so I want to touch on this last uh, topic here before we shut the show down. Um, we're going to talk about leptin, refeeds, die breaks, the study that was done there at USF. Um, our friend Lane Norton, friend of all of ours here on the show, he made a post and comment the other day that some listeners wanted us to kind of comment on and address because it's an interesting topic. Um, and I tried to find it while we were, while we were waiting on, on Instagram. I just can't find it. Um, but I think and lane, don't shoot me if I'm exactly wrong on this, but I think I'm pretty close. Um, lane had stated that there's, there's not any evidence supporting or showing that um, leptin and boosts in leptin or things of that nature um, increase fat loss. So Bill, we did the study with refeeds and you measured leptin and all that stuff was kind of looked at. Um, what's your thoughts on, on Lane saying that leptin, there's no research out there that supports leptin will increase fat loss or help with fat loss. Um, what's your take on that? So he might be referring to some of the early work in humans where they injected leptin in obese individuals and there was not a decrease in fat. And, and I'm, this was, I, I looked at this when I was a grad student, so I'm, I'm, I might be a little dated now, but I think they, they attached the problem not to necessarily leptin, but a leptin receptor issue was why they believed that the increase in leptin concentrations that were injected didn't cause fat loss. In my own research, we've looked at leptin in, a, in multiple case studies in bodybuilders, competitive bodybuilders, um, bikini and figure athletes as well, as well as in our refeed study. None of those studies were designed to increase leptin. We were just observing leptin. And across the board, what we found, and this just matches the, the broader scientific literature, when people lose fat, they, their leptin levels go down. 
So the, the, the thought to me as a researcher is, well, if we're able to prevent leptin from going down, would, would that potentially allow us to have an, an, a more successful fat loss phase? That I don't know. But what I clearly know from my own data and the broader literature is as fat is lost and as calories are lowered, leptin levels go down. Now, you guys are, I'm a, I don't know if you have your clients get leptin checked, but you might have a little bit more insight into trying to manipulate leptin on a case-by-case basis. I, uh, I, I've never had it looked at in labs, but I can just chime in here real quick with one thing. Um, on my end, Bill, is, you know, for our listeners that are wondering why, why are we talking about leptin? What the hell is leptin? They're trying to Google why they're listening. Just I'll give a real quick breakdown of why it's important to people like us on the show and people listening. Um, leptin is a hormone that's primarily made in, in, um, in conjunction in, in the fat cell, not all the way, but a lot of it. And the leaner you get, the lower your body fat gets, the lower your leptin levels get because it's, it's set up um, based on, on fat on how much fat you have to some degree, a very important degree. So as you get leaner, leptin starts to drop and leptin does two main things that we're really interested in, in the body is it one, it helps with um, thyroid regulation and, and metabolism. But the other thing is it, it's a hunger signal that tells your brain, Hey, you know, after you eat a meal, it says it sends the signal to your brain that says, Hey, I'm full, I'm satiated. And that's why when people get shredded for shows, it doesn't matter you know, you eat your meal and 30 minutes to an hour later, you're ready to chew your arm off. That's because your body fat is so low. You're not getting that signal to your brain to tell your body that you're full. And it's also why people that have reverse diet and stayed extremely lean in the off season, their leptin levels are still low. They're still fucking starving all the time. So that kind of gives, you know, a little breakdown on leptin. But what we're talking about here is, you know, we, during this study, you know, we, we had two refeeds back to back. And, you know, my whole thought during this whole process and why I have my clients to refeed is because they will slightly boost leptin a little bit. That's what that's that's what we think is going to happen. And by that, you get in that slight boost in leptin when someone's dieting down, it kind of gives the metabolism kind of an uptick or a little boost. Um, and that's kind of been the whole thought for years. Um, Jason, is there anything that you want to add to that? I just want to kind of break leptin down for people real quick. No, I, I mean, I think you. I think you hit on it. Um, you know, I think you study and put more emphasis on it than I do. You know, I'm just like, well, here's a refeed. It's going to increase leptin. Let's, you know, roll on with it. It's, I, I don't have a ton more to add in that, that department. It was there. You said during our study, you know, we had, you know, a group that did zero refeeds and we had the group that did the back-to-back refeeds. Leptin went down for everybody though, correct? When they dieted. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately we couldn't do, a comparison between the two groups because I didn't have enough subjects that got both the baseline and post study. So I had to group everybody together and yeah, regardless of what group they were in leptin levels went, went down and that was, you know, predictably they, they all lost, you know, significant amount of fat. So you, you would expect that the, the best study design there would be to have a two day or even a one day or three day carbohydrate refeed test leptin levels going into it and coming out of it. Now, now you're making leptin the primary research variable. That's what we need to do in ideally a lean population to say, okay, this is working on acute leptin. Cause even when we measured leptin, 
it, in, in the carbohydrate refeed group, it was two days after their last refeed. So we didn't even get leptin the next morning. It was two days later. So it was more of a chronic response rather than an acute leptin response. Gotcha. So l- let me ask you a couple other questions. Kind of ties into what Lane is saying, if, as long as, like I said, I didn't butcher it. Um, there was everyone lost fat. Um, so there's not really, we didn't gather any data saying that the people with refeeds had better fat loss because everybody lost fat. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So what did we see though with, um, the people that did refeeds, what did we see the difference in as far as like body composition and stuff like that? So the, the main finding of that study was a significant, um, maintenance of dry fat-free mass. And I'm going to accentuate the word dry there. I wanted to be very careful. And as you know, because you helped design the study, we wanted to be careful that giving the, the, the people the two-day carbohydrate refeed, we didn't want to test their body composition the day after a two-day carb refeed, because we know that carbs will increase muscle glycogen. Muscle glycogen is like stored carbs in the muscle. That attracts more water. So we didn't want to measure this the day after the refeed and potentially count all this water as an increase in muscle mass. So we did two things to help control for the the potential problem that that glycogen and water would introduce to this study. We tested everybody two days after the last carbohydrate refeed. And since my lab measures total body water, and for that matter, intra and extracellular water water, we subtracted out the total body water from the, from the muscle mass so that if there was an increase in water from the carbohydrates, we did not account where we accounted for that. So we had a significant maintenance of dry fat-free mass in this study. So the refeeds helped maintain muscle mass to a better extent than not having the refeeds. Now, I will say also, we didn't quite reach the level of a statistical significance, but the refeed groups did lose more fat and they better maintained their resting metabolic rate. So whenever there was an advantage, it was always in the, the favor of the refeed group and a significant advantage in terms of dry fat-free mass or dry muscle mass in that study. Yeah, and I guess to me it it comes down to the fact that we need uh, more research on leptin and physique athletes, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, there's no question. Yep. Jason, do you have anything that you want to add to that, man? Like I said, man, leptin is just not something I'm just going to be honest with. I I just don't really – it's not sexy to me. I just don't really do much with it, so I'm I'm good where you guys have left it. Cool. Bill, is there anything else that, uh, that you want to talk about when it comes to leptin or the uh, refeed study that we did? No, I'll just say one thing. I think back to our earlier talk, if you could have any, an evidence-based person or even the complete bro coach say, well, they have to be two-day refeeds. That's what the research says. And that's true. A two-day refeed does seem to have some, some positives but it doesn't mean it's better than a one day refeed or a three day refeed. It doesn't mean it's worse. We, we just don't know. We, what we looked at was what are the effects of a two day carbohydrate refeed? And we reported what we reported. The next step should be maybe 
dividing up these two days across the week, maybe a Wednesday high carb day and a Sunday high carb day. But until we have that study, I'm not comfortable saying, well, this is, this is the best way to do it. It's the one way that has been shown to maintain dry fat free mass. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember, I actually championed to split no, it up. Um, I do remember. Wait, that, that was the biggest, I struggled with that because you were kind of like my, my, my coach in the trenches, and I think that's what you did. And, you know, just talking to my research staff, I think we went with more of a lifestyle approach. Hey, this could be the weekends, but I, I definitely remember that. Was, sure. And it's, it's, there's, there's really no wrong way to do it. And it's still, I still to this day don't do back-to-back refeeds um, unless they're doing kind of a cortisol reset. And that wasn't until really Jason kind of threw that out there um, and he was doing it with Leslie. So, you know, I think there's definitely a place for back-to-back refeeds. I know the way I think mentally is, you know, as people are getting leaner, um, spread the refeeds out. Maybe they get a small uptick on Sunday. Maybe they get a small uptick on Wednesday and insulin sensitivity is probably a little bit better. If you do a refeed on Sunday, then you deplete for, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you do another one on Wednesday evening. That's always just been my, my approach, my mental, um, the way I think of things, I just try and, you know, do it that way because we don't really have the research, but obviously there is research showing that two days are good. And then you've got someone like Jason that's, that's doing it with people for cortisol resets and it's working. So the reason the long winded response to this is guys, don't be afraid to fucking try stuff. Just go out there and try it and see what you're, see what your, your clients are doing in the trenches and what's, what's working. Um, Jason, I mean, what, what was one of the things that led you to doing the back-to-back refeeds whenever you had to do it? Was it mainly cortisol or, or were you doing that before? It was, I took the research that, you know, you worked with uh, Bill on um, and then thought to myself, how am I, I kept having women who I would, I would fix their labs and get their cortisol down. And then it would be time to run labs again and they'd be back over twenties. And, you know, you want that, that's fastest serum under 19. And really anytime you get above 12, it's starting to build up. And so I thought to myself, well, how can I, you know, reset the things I need to reset, but then also control this um, cortisol. And it just seemed basically high cow resting, no cardio. And then, you know, I have this cortis at my disposal under new ethics. Let's rock that every two to three hours And, you know, I just kind of put, so basically it was part putting together, you know, the research, um, from you at, uh, from Bill and then, you know, you talking to me about it. And then of course, having at my disposal, you know, new ethics products. So that's kind of how it all came about. But the the design was how can I keep these women from, from continually running high cortisol? They just seem prone whenever we kick up the diet. Yeah, super interesting, Bill. We've got to we've got to close down because you've got your meeting coming up. Um, I'm going to link your Instagram here in the show notes for everyone listening, guys. Definitely go give Bill a follow because he posts these awesome questions. Um, Bill, where'd you get the idea to post the questions based on research? Those are a lot of fun. I, I people love those. They get a kick out and they get shared everywhere. Where'd you kind of get the the idea for that? You know, it's I haven't been on social media very long, and and probably about you know, year and a half or maybe even close to two years. I'm like, all right, I'm going to start doing Instagram. And I was like, I, 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 
if you, well, you know me, I'm not going to accentuate my head and my face. That's probably not going <laughs> to generate a lot of, a lot of attention. So I thought, well, I'm going to do something that nobody else is doing. And I, I'm a professor. So a large part of my job is designing que exam questions for my students. So I was just like, you know what, I'll just take some of these from my classes. And I, I you know I read a lot of research. So I think it was just two things. One, knowing what I wasn't going to do and trying to be different. Like nobody else is doing this. Very simple text-based questions without a lot of, you know, pictures and, and text. And for whatever reason, yeah, people really, really enjoy them. Yeah, your Instagram page has exploded. In 2017, when we met at the ISSN conference, sit down and have dinner that night, I don't even think you had Instagram. And if you did, you only had a few posts. And you know, No, I don't. Yeah, I think I may have had one, but yeah, probably less than 20 posts. And it definitely wasn't something I cared about. Well, and that's the reason I bring this up is because we've got a lot of people that put so much emphasis on these Photoshop, perfect pictures have to look a certain way. It's like, no, you fucking help people and your, your shit grows. Like, that's the thing. Like you're helping a ton of people learn and people are interested in that. So that just kind of a little shout out to our listeners. Like if you want to understand how to really grow your platforms right now, go take a look at Bill's page and look at the value that he's offering um, you're not on there selling a bunch of stuff. Like you said, you're not trying to look a certain way. Like you're just, you're helping people. And that's what, that's what people need. Um, man, it's been fun. We need to have you back on the show. Uh, we've got other researchers lined up. I, I've talked to Pete Fitchin before and, and other great researchers that are going to come on the show, but Bill, we definitely want to have you back on. Is there anything that you want to say before we close it down? Yeah. I just want to thank my, my research staff. Again, it's, I'm very blessed. I've, they make, they get paid nothing other than just, they get to work, they get to clean the lab. Um, they essentially, they are coaches, they're nutrition coaches that help our subjects. Um, my research coordinator right now is Jana Mastrofini. So I want to give her a shout out. She basically runs my lab for me. She's a huge help. So I am, everything I do is because of, of my students and I am, I'm just so blessed to have, have them want to, to be involved with this. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm going to say it and I'm going to plug it one more time. And Jason, you're probably getting tired of me blowing sunshine up your ass, but Bill, you guys have got to get together on something because Jason's really leading the way on bringing functional medicine and those kind of approaches into bodybuilding. And it's super, super early and he's getting all of us to think outside the box. So you guys stay connected. Let's uh, let's see if you guys can, can put anything good together. I think that's, that's the next level and kind of pushing the industry forward. And that's, uh, that's what's important. So I'm going to go ahead and, and shut this down guys for myself, Jason and Bill. We're out of here. See ya. <laughs>